there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 428. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is thisshowissogay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have just a wonderful show for you this week. Let me introduce our guest. Dr. Caitlin Ryan is the director of the Family Acceptance Project, a research, intervention, education, and policy project that helps ethnically and religiously diverse families to support their LGBT children. We're going to talk all about it. Dr. Ryan is a clinical social worker who has worked on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender health and mental health issues for nearly 40 years. She pioneered community-based aid services at the beginning of the epidemic. She initiated the first major study to identify lesbian health needs in the early 1980s and has worked to implement quality care for LGBT youth since the early 1990s. Her work has been acknowledged by so many groups, including the American Psychiatric Association, the National Association of Social Workers, the American Psychological Association, Division 44, that gave her the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award for her groundbreaking research on LGBT youth and families. She has served on so many advisory groups. I can't even list them all. I'm just excited to have her here. Dr. Caitlin Ryan, welcome back to This Show is So Gay. Ken, it's so great to be back, and happy holidays to everyone. And happy holidays to you. Do you know that it has been over five years since you have been on this show? We have so much catching up to do. We do, and I'm glad we have plenty of time. Let's do it. Let's start with you. We, we have to take a step back. What drives you, Caitlin? What pushes you forward to do this work? Well, you know, Ken, I'm, I'm um, older. I grew up in the 1950s, and in the 60s I was a teenager, and I always had that sense, as so many of us do as a child, of being different. I was a gender-diverse child, a little girl in the 1950s, and you can imagine the kinds of um, pressures that that generated. I knew that I was a lesbian when I was very young, but... You couldn't really talk about it. There was no place to find support. You couldn't even find accurate information that wasn't very negative and disturbing. And so I I think early on I realized that it was hard for me to find my way and that one of the most important things I could do would be to help young people as I I got older and went into some kind of a formal um, career. The thing is, Ken, I've, I've always been really creative, so... I have a background in, in the arts and music, and so finding my own route took a while, and I've used uh, the arts in everything that I've, that I've ever done. And I, I, Actually, this is my 42nd year of working in LGBT health and mental health. And wow. I've been fascinated by culture since I was a teenager and have worked in very diverse cultures in the U.S. and outside. And what I saw in the 1970s was this opportunity for the emergence of what today we would call the LGBT health movement. And and having worked um, in cultures of poverty in the 1960s, I saw that health was an incredibly important human right that was treated 
as if it wasn't a human right and a place where people were profoundly discriminated against. So I realized that was a place where I could make a difference. And by the time the 1970s rolled around, I became part of the emerging LGBT health movement. And that, you know, contributed to all the various kinds of projects or initiatives or studies or programs that I began to launch. And part of what happened was it my professional career coincided. So I tried to get into social work school as a as an out lesbian in the 1970s and actually was rejected. Wow. Um, even though I had the best credentials and great references. And so I became my first client. I became my first case to advocate for in order to get a professional education, which which I was able to do. And my my education took me to Smith College School for Social Work, and I was sent to Atlanta at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And having already worked in LGBT community organizing and developing um, early health systems, people in the community asked for my help to start Aid Atlanta, which was the first AIDS organization in the South at the beginning of the epidemic. And you can imagine what it was like in 1980 um, in the South, you know, so much discrimination, so much shame, and so many people really living in the closet or hiding to protect themselves and their families. So when I graduated with my new MSW, I became, I helped organize and found and became the first director of Aid Atlanta, which was the first AIDS organization in the South. And I did training all across the Southeast, and so many young gay and bisexual men came to Atlanta from all of those communities in the South. They left home to try to self-actualize in another community without um, losing the love of their families, without having to come out, without shaming their families. I worked with their families as well as those young people when they were on their deathbeds in hospitals and hospices. I met their parents when they came in from small communities from across the South to to be with their child um, in their last moments. And it was, um, I can actually hardly ever talk about it without... um, without just feeling it again, what it was like to to share that time with them. The parents were devastated. They, Most of them learned for the first time that their children were gay and were dying of AIDS. Wow. They didn't understand. They didn't know why their children had left home and, and only maybe came home once a year for the holidays, times like this around Thanksgiving. But they did know that that they only had a few moments left and there was nothing that they could do to really change what had happened. And I saw that that there was this incredible opportunity to really make a difference, to help prevent, you know, these terrible losses and great suffering. And I saw that those parents would have given anything to change the future. And so I realized then that we needed to change the way families were not only interacting with their, what we would call today, LGBT children, but really changed the perception of families as allies and not adversaries. Because when I started doing this work all those years ago, families were really seen as the enemy and they weren't included as systems of care evolved, as the LGBT youth community programs evolved. Because the perception was that providers and 
advocates and you know community members had to protect LGBT young people from their parents who were seen as being incapable of growing and changing um, to be able to help support that child, particularly in communities of color, ethnically and religiously diverse communities, socially and religiously diverse communities. And so I, I realized that not only did we need a, a research foundation, but we needed to develop a whole new family-based model of care, of support, to help families learn to support their LGBT children in the context of their family, their culture, and their faith traditions. So that set me on a whole course that when I moved to California, now almost 20 years ago, I had already been planning what needed to happen in order to change the paradigm, to change the frame. And I started working with Rafael Diaz here at San Francisco State University, and we conceptualized the Family Acceptance Project and got our initial funding to do the comprehensive research that had never been done before. So we set on this remarkable journey of beginning to study what happens in, in diverse families when LGBT young people are found to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender in adolescence, and how does that relate to their risk and well-being as a young adult. And that's what brings us here today. Yeah. I have to tell you, in 428 episodes, you just won the award. I have never gotten choked up before in doing this work. And, you know, I... I love talking about the early 80s, which is a little bit of a bias for me just because I was three or four years old, right? So I I know my history. I love talking about the history, but I didn't live it in the way that you heroes really did. And so I'm always trying to bring that forward and, and prompting folks like you to bring forward. What is it that, that people like me or certainly younger than me who maybe have read about the early 80s and can kind of wrap our minds around the devastation, but weren't really living it, what is it that we need to bring forward from that time to the work that we're doing right now? I mean, you, you certainly hit on some of it with the work of families, right, and the importance of families. Is there anything else that we need to be bringing forward, those of us who didn't live it? Well, I guess one thing I would call for, um, I think it's so incredibly important. As a community, we, when we emerged, when we began to start our own organizations in the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, we were primarily a community of young adults. Yeah. We had no children and youth. We had no seniors. We had no connection across the generations. And I think one of the unfortunate outcomes of that is that as we've, as we've aged as a community, even though we've identified the needs of youth and seniors, we still don't really have that connectedness across the generations, that generativity that really helps us understand what it was like before. Right. And how do we use that to understand the experiences of where we are now and, and how that impacts our sense of the future. So bringing, I think, a sense of intergenerativity, if you want to call it that, is incredibly important. The experiences of older LGBT people and what they did to survive and thrive and create community and help each other. And also, Ken, one of the things that we've always done as a community is to help the broader community. We've been 
you know, mainstays in our own families and in our social organizations and political organizations and community groups and congregations where our sense of um, sharing and and the kinds of, I think, struggles that we've had have really sensitized us to what other people need and what will help forge community. And that's something that I think today is desperately needed when we're at a time where, in some ways, having lived as long as I have, I feel like I'm a throwback to the 1950s where mm. the kinds of um, isms and discord and conflict uh, seems to be emerging around us all the time and bringing the sense of what we've learned about how to build and maintain community in the face of enormous social struggle and victimization building on that resilience that we've had as a community. I think that's something that we can share today, and I hope that younger people who I think don't know much about the past, and it's very different for them today, they haven't had to struggle in exactly the same way that older generations have, that this is such an important time to um, tighten those bonds and learn from what's come before. Yeah. You know, I usually save my gushing for the end of the interview, but I got to tell you right now, I adore you. Oh, this is like, this is going to be, this is uh, listeners part one of 12 with Dr. Caitlin Ryan. I'm just putting that out there. All right. Let's talk about the Family Acceptance Project. I don't know if you know this, but you guys are celebrating 15 years. How do you wrap your mind around 15 years of doing this? Well, and it's been action packed because yeah. obviously this had been on my stovetop for decades before I finally was able to get you know, the appropriate funding, and you know, Ken, oh as an gosh. academic, when you do rigorous research, you need funding for it, yeah. and you need a, an institutional base. So I'm actually part of the Marion Wright Edelman Institute at San Francisco State University in California, and my research partner and still collaborator is Rafael Diaz, who was one of the very first researchers at the, and he's also, a, by the way, a clinical social worker and a clinical psychologist who developed the first sociocultural model of risk for gay and bisexual men of color to bring intersectionality, that big, fancy academic work together, which really means various aspects of people's identity that has a big effect on how they live in the world and what happens to them. We actually came together to plan and carry out, the, at the time, the first study that had ever been done that included both LGBT young people and their families. And today you and I would think, well, that's staggering. You mean nobody had ever studied the families before? And, right. And I would say, no, no one, no one had actually interviewed families and really looked at what happened over time. And and how their responses to their LGBT children related to their child's risk and well-being. So we did this amazing multi-part research that was participatory. So imagine the Thanksgiving dinner table and sitting around the table with us were all of these LGBT young people, their parents, families, caregivers, providers, and of course our research team because they participated in this process with us. So we started with a big interview-based study all across California where my experiences as a community organizer going back into the late 1960s and 70s and 80s, it, it served me well because we identified 
LGBT young people and their families, families who are both um, actually accepting, ambivalent, and rejecting of their LGBT child. So we did in-depth individual interviews with each adolescent, their parents, their key caregivers, family members, to look at all of their formative experiences, including culture and religion and how that affected the way their parents responded, their hopes and dreams for the future, experiences with school and peers and the emergence of their LGBT identity and gender expression. And in the course of those interviews, which, by the way, we ended up with 8,000 pages of transcript, English and Spanish, (laughs) because we did our work bilingually, biculturally in English and Spanish, we identified over 100 specific behaviors that parents and caregivers used to respond to their LGBT child. So our caregivers included foster parents, guardians, um, older siblings who had assumed the parental role for that LGBT young person, as well as the young person themselves, how their caregivers responded to them, behaviors like um, trying to find a positive role model to give them a sense of the future, or welcoming their LGBT friends and partners to their home and to family events and activities, versus rejecting behaviors like trying to change their sexual orientation or gender identity, or excluding them from family events and activities because of who they are. I want to give you an image because radio can be such a beautiful visual space, too. Let's do it. Imagine imagine a family walking down the street in town with that LGBT youth, and imagine the family physically separating from that child on the street because the message that they're giving to other people is, this young person doesn't belong to us. They're not part of our family. Those were some of the kinds of um, experiences that we identified in our research. We identified over 100 of them. We then measured the relationship between very specific accepting and rejecting behaviors in adolescence with their risk and well-being as a young adult. And what we found was this very dramatic relationship between increasing amounts of rejection and very high levels of risk for attempted suicide or substance abuse or high risk for HIV or depression uh, versus very high levels of accepting behaviors as the as the acceptance increased the well-being increased the risk for suicide or substance use or depression dropped the level of self-esteem and wellness and even general health increased so what we did was we created a new language it was a language of very specific accepting and rejecting behaviors that we could teach parents and families how to learn to support their child even if they thought that being gay or transgender is wrong. So we then spent a couple of years taking our findings back to really diverse families from all different kinds of backgrounds in three languages, English, Spanish, and Chinese, different ethnic and racial groups and young people and their families, and we had them teach us how to message our research findings, how to talk about them, how to present them, What kinds of information and guidance did people in their cultural worlds need to learn to understand how to support that LGBT child? We took all of that information and developed the first family intervention or family support model, 
And our, our mission really has been to integrate our family support approach into what they call systems of care. So the primary care provider, the pediatrician, you know, working with LGBT young people to include family-oriented care that includes parents and caregivers, to include it in mental health services, school-based services, um, out-of-home care. Imagine if we could identify LGBT young people who are experiencing high levels of conflict as a younger child or adolescent so that we could work with those parents and caregivers to prevent that young person from ending up in foster care, juvenile justice, or homeless and on the street. And so we've been working in those systems as well. And we also work with faith-based communities. So we work with a range of denominations, you know, from very rejecting all the way over to accepting and supportive, integrating our family approach in ways of educating and guiding parents and families to learn to support that child based on behavioral change. You can change your behavior, behaviors that we know are, are putting young people at really high risk without having to change the doctrine, for example, in right. your faith. And just to give you a quick taste of what I'm talking about, we found that when there were a lot of those rejecting behaviors, um, preventing a child from having an LGBT friend, preventing them from learning about their sexual orientation or gender identity, or participating in an LGBT youth support group, lots of those behaviors, that young person was more than eight times as likely to have attempted suicide or more than six times as likely to report high levels of depression or more than three times as likely to use illegal drugs or put themselves at high risk for HIV or STDs through unsafe, risky sexual behavior if they came from a family that was highly rejecting during adolescence. At the same time, we could show what could happen with supportive behaviors. And so we've developed a whole framework that we're now integrating into different systems of care, actually in different communities around the country, and we hope to increase that over time. Yeah. You know, I would like you to keep in mind for a second that I've already told you that I adore you, but I will also say that I don't think I ever want to be in a meeting with you because, and this is my stereotype of you, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I don't feel like I could just do what I do, which is sometimes speak off the cuff because I think you're one of the people who would stop me and say, you know, but is that evidence-based? Talk to our listeners about the importance of doing this work in an evidence-based way, not just on our emotions and not just based on, oh, here's what we're seeing on social media, but you really back this up with saying there are actual practices that we need to root in research. Well, and our work is rooted in research. So evidence-based is incredibly important. And when we started the early services for, you know, again, what we would call LGBT people today, we didn't have evidence, but we knew what our experiences were like, and we knew what our opinions were, and we knew what we wanted to see. And as we created services, they were really based on our experience. So if we were an Anglo middle-aged person, our experiences quite likely did not include the experiences of a person of color or maybe somebody from a conservative community or a certain geographic area. That's why it's so incredibly important to have actual evidence to show what works, where should we put our resources, what can help, 
how should we be framing messages to reach and engage diverse communities that want to understand how to help LGBT people, but let's say their um, their cultural beliefs and values are a barrier. If we have evidence, as we have with our research, and, and by the way, Ken, um, if I could just suggest for a moment to your listeners that they put in their browser Family Acceptance Project and go and check out some of our family education booklets, which are in English, Spanish, and Chinese, and we happen to have um, started a faith-based series. Those booklets are the first best practice resources for suicide prevention for LGBT youth in the Best Practices Registry for Suicide Prevention. We use those booklets and those um, other educational materials that we've developed with families everywhere, and it simplifies understanding that it's your behaviors that matter. You may love your child and you may come from a culture that says this is wrong, it's shameful, it's against our values and beliefs. So the behaviors then that that parent or caregiver may be doing, we've shown in our research are harmful to that child. Because we can show them the connection between a behavior like trying to change a child's sexual orientation or gender identity or isolating them because parents may think that you become gay or transgender by being around someone who's LGBT. We can show them that when they do those behaviors, it can significantly increase their child's risk. It can increase conflict in the family. It can um, erode the underlying bonds between parent and child. Having the evidence to show that is so much more powerful than just saying, this is my opinion, or this is what we did in our family, or this is what we think will work for you. And that's one of the reasons why not only did we develop this family support model, but we've developed a lot of tools and resources to help educate and guide parents and families. And that includes, for example, our family education booklets. And um, when we started preparing to do some media for our now 15th anniversary, um, and I tallied up uh, the dissemination of our booklets, I found that we had disseminated over 530,000 copies of those online and in person across the U.S. and in 70 other countries. And if I could for a moment just tell you a story. Please. Uh, About two months ago, I got a, um, a little private message in Facebook from a dad whom I had met uh, 10 years ago um, when their son was about nine. They came from a very conservative community in northern Utah. They were devout Mormons. Um, Their faith believed that uh, being gay was wrong. And anybody who was gay was so shamed that most people at that time were still in the closet. And they believed that their nine-year-old son, whom they loved very much, was gay based on gender-diverse behavior and some of his interests. And they wanted to protect him, and they didn't know how. They heard me speak at um, a public education session in Salt Lake. Um, I brought copies of our family education booklets that actually showed parents and caregivers how to support their LGBT kids when they didn't understand how to do that or how to make sure that they could reduce these harmful behaviors and increase support. And they followed um, what we talked about in our booklet. They used it because it also, our, one of the basic tenets of our work is that 
you can support your LGBT child without choosing between your child and your culture or your child and your faith. This son wasn't out. He had never talked about who he was, but they followed our recommendations in their home, and then by age 12, he had come out. And at another educational event that I did, they brought him to meet me, and I got to meet their son and um, get a feel for who he is. They became more public in their community, continuing to use our family acceptance project framework. The note that the dad sent me two months ago was a picture of his son with his boyfriend oh. going, going to the prom. And the dad talked about how proud they were of their happy, healthy, gay son who had just graduated high school, who was going to college. He was in a relationship with a wonderful young man who had also graduated high school and and how how good life was for them and thanking me for the work that we'd done. I get hundreds of emails every month from people from all over the world, other countries too, talking about using our materials even though they may not benefit from the clinical work or the counseling or the family education intervention work that we do in person, which we also do in different communities. These materials that we develop together with parents, young people, and their caregivers in a participatory way tell basic messages that are evidence-based. And having that evidence and the peer-reviewed research to go back to is so powerful because when families have extended family members, grandparents, religious leaders, others who say, How can you let them be this way? This is wrong. We don't believe this. You're being a really bad parent. They can go back to the evidence and they can say, look, remember how depressed or withdrawn or um, sad our child was when we were doing these other behaviors? This shows us how incredibly important it is to prevent those kinds of rejecting behaviors and start to support our child. So evidence is everything, because we can also use it to build systems of care that are going to support wellness. And that's another point that I want to make, Ken, which is that in all the public policy and the early framing for for our initially gay youth, LGBT youth, the framework has been on preventing them from harm. I realize that in a stigmatized society, that was the best that we could do the best that we could do in schools where kids were being bullied. But we have to do so much more than that. And our research really speaks to that. It's not just preventing people from hurting them. It's promoting their well-being. It's developing their gifts and abilities and capacities and really building a sense of self-worth that's going to impact their behavior across the course of their lives. Yeah. Again, listeners, we are here with Dr. Caitlin Ryan, the director of the Family Acceptance Project. Dr. Ryan, it has happened. I don't know if you've ever heard of this happening, but I know for a fact that at some point in history, there has been a social worker or two who has burnt out because of the stress of this work. You have been doing this work for so long. We need some tips for our listeners who want to engage in this inherently social justice work to keep from burning out. What do we say to them? Oh, wow. Um, That is such a great question. I know you must have been up late at night thinking. (laughs) I usually am, (laughs) yes. I have to be honest and say that I burned out um, within a very short time of becoming a social worker. Mm. 
And again, it goes back to my early experiences. Um, I, this is hard to say, um, but within a year of working in the AIDS epidemic as a, as a clinical social worker, I lost 100 young gay and bisexual men who died. Wow. I knew them personally. I tried to, I advocated for them. I helped keep them in a care unit when no one would take them. I supported their parents. Um, and so I found that I needed to step away from doing direct clinical work for a time. I, I did what I probably would advocate for other people to do. I found a new way to practice. So one of the things I did was I worked at a higher level up the, um, up the cherry picker. In other words, I went from direct service to working at the policy level. And I learned really to how do we integrate these critical issues into public policy in a way where I could really make a difference. And so one of the things I, I did at that point was with a colleague to write the first book on AIDS policy um, to help create a an AIDS Policy Institute in, in the academy at George Washington University and to do education and training for governments. For Our book was actually written for Congress, so we had an impact on the Presidential Commission on AIDS. So I began to move from, from the, the micro to the macro. I've moved back and forth over time. I began to find a way to use my skills and abilities that would help uh, protect um, my own emotional space and capacity to do the work yeah. as well as enable me to continue because I've seen this as my mission and one of the things that's always been a concern for me is that a lot of young people burn out uh, before um, they're really able to actualize in a field and social work is very hard. Any kind of direct service where we're working with a high-risk population is hard. Self-care is really important. Having the support of family and friends, having pets, taking vacations, um, finding other ways to practice that are going to enable us to make a difference without having that emotional drain. I think these are all things that it's great to do them up front. When the AIDS epidemic came, I, I didn't understand, as most of us didn't, the intensity and how that was going to affect us day by day by day, minute by minute, as it did. Um, if I hadn't lost all of those young men early on, I think I would have stayed longer in direct practice. But as a result, I've learned to um, to carry my mission and implement it in a lot of different kinds of ways. Yeah. Dr. Caitlin Ryan, do my eyes deceive me, or am I looking at a picture of you standing in between First Lady Michelle Obama and President Barack Obama? <laughs> you are. Can you tell me how that came to be? I don't have one of those pictures. I've tried to Photoshop my head on yours. It doesn't work. Well, I have them with some other um, presidents or um, first ladies. I, I was actually invited to an event at the White House, and someone came up to me and said, um, we'd love to invite you to get your picture taken with President Obama and the first lady. And I said, well, great. So um, that was a wonderful day, and I had a few minutes to tell them about my work, which they were very interested in. Oh, that's a good thing. I don't know that you are going to have that opportunity with the current administration. 
Well, there's always hope. There is hope. Well, but that is a question, right? So in doing this work, because you made a joke off the air, and I'm totally outing you, but I, I know, you know, with the high-level work you do, and we talk about this a lot, right? Fundraising is a necessary, I don't want to call it an evil because it's important, but it's a necessary part of this work, but it's sometimes very draining. And so I would imagine that part of doing this work is also having a sense of how a changing administration might affect the work that you're doing. Has this changed administration affected what it is that you're putting out there or your ability to do this work? It hasn't yet affected it. Okay. Um, I think we're still beginning to look at how the administration is going to change um, what the Obama administration was really doing in terms of LGBT health and mental health. Right. I've worked with some of the health and mental health institutions in D.C. at a national level really since well, since the 1970s, and I even worked at the National Institutes of Health at one point, and I've been um, involved in government. So I do have personal relationships, and there are many committed career professionals who work in our health and social institutions at the government level who've, you know, for decades been making a critical difference in addressing the needs of of our community across yeah. the country. So I'm I'm always hopeful. I think that what I've learned, and I guess that's another thing I would talk about um, in terms of self-care, is really keeping hope alive. And part of the beauty of getting to do the work that I do is I'm always interacting with young people and their families or providers or others who are connected to them, and including religious and community leaders. And and I'm always getting feedback on what I'm doing, and I'm always seeing the impact of bringing hope into the lives of people who feel like they're cornered, like there's no place for them to go, like now that they've learned something completely different about themselves that they never expected and they think is going to end their future, that we can replace it with hope. So I would say as we move into the holidays, I'm bringing this very hopeful um, sense of the future into any of the relationships that I'm going to be having with government agencies, whether they're at a federal level, at a state, municipal, community. At the end of the day, how does Dr. Caitlin Ryan measure success? How do you know if your efforts are successful? What, what does that word mean to you? You know, I guess I would have to say how I see it affecting the lives of individuals. Yeah. And also how I see it having changed systems. I think um, back to when I started doing the work of the Family Acceptance Project and no one talked about families. You never heard them discussed. I remember when I did a training at the oldest and largest LGBT youth program in the country, and when I finished, they looked at each other and they said, this turns everything that we do on its head. We never mention families. Right. We never even use the word because we think it's too hurtful for our youth to hear. And one of the staff members who was a woman of color said, and we never invite our own families to our social events and gatherings so that we can show young people that we can have family support, that they can participate actively in our lives. So I think about those 
early experiences. Another one that was staggering was when Tyler Clementi died by suicide, and you may remember that there was a raft of not only publicity because the media all of a sudden discovered that gay youth were part of our lives, but many communities were doing fundraising. And I remember seeing many appeals that came into me um, to provide services, to provide support. It was staggering to me that when they listed the places where we had to support LGBT youth, schools, communities, um, networking, no one ever mentioned the word family. Mm. So if we were to do a content analysis of, you know, the, the newspapers, the LGBT media, and we were to go back, you know, 15 years ago, you wouldn't find this anywhere. You wouldn't even find it in the media. We wouldn't certainly be doing a radio show about it. Right. It takes a long time to seed the ground. It's like when you want to build, you know, create a garden. You really have to till that soil first. And it took a long time in, in our work training, educating and guiding providers and families to help people understand that families are a critical resource we're still doing that, and again, when I was preparing for our our 15th anniversary and looked back at the education and training that we've done for families, providers, and religious leaders over that time, we've actually trained about 85,000 families, providers, and religious leaders. Wow. The basic framework for increasing family support and decreasing family rejection, and some of the most important things I would tell people in beginning to change the landscape in their in their agency or community was to start to talk about families. Put information about them on your website. Include the families of LGBT people on your advisory boards and committees. The focus has been so youth-focused that it's almost as if that next circle, that next level in people's lives of families, just, it was a shadow. It didn't exist. So, I get to see the impact both on the individual level, which is so powerful and emotionally rewarding, and I also get to see it on a much broader level. Amazing. Listeners, this is what we need you to do. You need to stroll on over to familyproject.sfsu.edu. That's familyproject.sfsu.edu. We will certainly link to it. What do you have coming up? I mean, 15th anniversary, we got to have a big party, right? <laughs> well, sadly, we don't have the resources to have a party. Okay. Every, every penny that I get goes directly into this work. So Don't be spending uh, that on a party. I shouldn't even have said that. <laughs> get to a party. But we've been doing outreach. We've been, um, we're tweeting out now some of the, those accomplishments that we've had. For yeah. example... The 85,000 providers, metrics on that, or the 530,000 family education booklets, or some of the information, you know, on our project over the past 15 years. We're actually, we did applied research, Ken, which means we didn't just write the, the research papers and the journals. We actually did research to foment change. And that change really is to create this first family-based model to prevent these very serious health risks of suicide and substance abuse and homelessness and fractured families and promote well-being, overall health, 
happy, healthy futures. So we're integrating our family model into intervention sites. And if people go to our website and um, if they just type in their browser Family Acceptance Project, it'll take you right there. We have a little section called Celebrating FAP's 15th Anniversary, and you can see a press release on some of the key things that we've done, a story of a family that we helped who actually became one of the families in one of our family intervention and support films, which are also best practice resources for suicide prevention for LGBT young people. We've got a map of all of the education and training sites just in the U.S. because I didn't have the time to do it around the world. We've trained in other places, too. And then we have information about all of our intervention sites. I'm going to ask your listeners, if they want to do one thing to help advance this work, go to our website, make a donation. You can donate individually to each of those intervention projects in one one of them is to actually integrate a family support approach into primary care. Imagine if every pediatrician or family doc at each back-to-school visit or um, sports physical could identify LGBT young people who were experiencing high levels of risk through family rejection and immediately do the critical work to help engage and involve families. Yeah. Imagine we could turn the tap down on homelessness. We could prevent, you know, the increasing numbers of suicides. We could prevent early onset depression and substance use over the course of a life. We could really build a more integrated community. And when families are involved, this is a really important part of what we've learned. When they learn to advocate for their LGBT child, typically they learn how important it is to advocate for other people's children too. And we begin to have the framework not only for welcoming communities but civil society. So help us do this work. Come to our website, make a contribution, um, offer to help in a variety of ways, and begin to start to talk about these issues with your families. Yeah. My browser is open right this very second to the donation page. I will make a donation before this hour is up. My hope is that you know this is life-altering, life-saving work. When I say that you are one of my heroes, it's both as an academic, because you do this research that I, I can't even wrap my mind around. I'm so happy with my little corner of the world and thinking, oh, I pushed myself. And then I look at what you guys are doing, and I'm thinking, my gosh, that is life-saving, life-altering work. And and you can hear the success right in all the material that you put out there, but I know it is those personal stories, so many of which you shared here, that make all the difference. And on behalf of the whole community, I just I thank you for what you're doing. And again, our listeners, Dr. Caitlin Ryan, Director of the Family Acceptance Project, a research intervention, education, and policy project that helps ethnically and religiously diverse families to support their LGBT children. You can type in Family Acceptance Project into your browser, or you can go directly over there by going to familyproject.sfsu.edu. Dr. Caitlin Ryan, you are one of my heroes. Thank you, Ken. I have to say I've been blessed to have been on this journey for such an incredible time. It's, it's taught me so much, and I've learned so much. And the beauty of being alive is that we grow every single day, and each one of these experiences has really amplified my understanding of what it means to be a human.
All right, folks, and we are back. Well, not a ton of time left on this week's episode, but let's cover some of the latest LGBTQ stories that are out there. The Canadian government, our neighbors to the north, the Canadian government, they are ready to pay over $85 million in compensation to victims of a so-called gay purge, which happened between 1862 and 1996. Additionally, legislation to expunge unjust convictions records of people charged under laws that criminalized homosexuality, that was also introduced. This week's announcement was accompanied by an apology from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to the victims of the LGBTQ community. A maximum award of $150,000 can be claimed by individuals who were violated by the program, while a portion of the overall compensation fund will be set aside to memorialize victims who are no longer alive. The Prime Minister said this, quote, Canada's role in the systemic oppression, criminalization, and violence against sexual minorities, it is with shame and sorrow and deep regret for the things we have done that I stand here today and say we were wrong. He went on to say this, quote, this is the devastating story of people who were branded criminals by the government, people who lost their livelihoods and in some cases their lives. These aren't distant practices of governments long forgotten. This happened systematically in Canada with a timeline more recent than any of us would like to admit. So that is the Canadian government taking some steps to ameliorate harm done in the past. Well, I am the host of This Show is So Gay, and it's another episode of This Show is So Gay, and it's November of 2017, almost December of 2017, so we are post-July of 2017, so you know what that means. Another update on President Trump's three-tweet ban on our trans siblings serving openly in the military. A judge has ruled that transgender soldiers must be allowed to join the military on January 1st, dealing another huge blow to President Trump's attempts to enforce a ban. U.S. District Judge Colleen Collar Cuddly filed an injunction in Washington, D.C., blocking parts of that order last month, and the Washington, D.C. judge has now confirmed that her ruling will bar the Trump administration from delaying the admission of new trans service personnel any longer. On July 1st, Defense Secretary James Mattis pushed back the date on which trans people could enroll in the military, but the Trump administration they cannot hold back the tide of progress any longer. The judge wrote this quote, those policies allowed for the accession of transgender individuals into the military beginning on January 1st, 2018. She followed that up with an underlined sentence. She actually underlined a sentence that said this quote, any action by any of the defendants that changes this status quo is preliminarily enjoined. So the big question now, right, so this is a ruling, and it's a ruling on a lawsuit that was brought against this proposed ban by five active soldiers with more than 60 combined years of service. The judge has said with this ruling that, that those five active soldiers were likely to win. So the question now is whether the Department of Justice or the Department of Defense or anyone from the Trump administration is actually going to spend more money doing this. These are judges who are saying, you have no merits to take such an action. And these individuals who are suing to combat you sending out three tweets blocking them from serving openly in the military, they're likely to win. They are likely to win. 
So this is a ban that you cannot enforce, sir. So will the Trump administration or any of the agencies therein spend money, spend time to fight this? We would certainly hope not. Again, why are we spending time and money to fight against individuals who want to serve in the military, who want to make that brave, brave choice? Why would we stop them from doing this if they are fit to serve, which they are deemed fit to serve? And I'm sure next week we'll have another update on that. In Russia, we have the 2018 World Cup of Soccer happening right now. And the anti-discrimination advisors to the World Cup are warning gay soccer fans going to this 2018 World Cup in Russia that displays of affection could be met with an aggressive response from intolerant locals. Homosexuality was decriminalized in Russia in 1993, but anti-gay sentiment remained strong and intensified after a law was introduced in 2013 prohibiting dissemination to minors of propaganda legitimizing homosexuality. Well, as fans prepared their trip after last week's World Cup draw, the FAIR network said it would produce a guide spelling out the threats to be prepared for in Russia. The executive director of this network said this, quote, The guide will advise gay people to be cautious in any place which is not seen to be welcoming to the LGBT community. If you have gay fans walking down the streets holding hands, will they face danger in doing so? That depends on which city they are in and the time of day. The guide will also also includes some detailed explanations of, for example, the actual situation of the LGBT community in Russia. It is not a crime to be gay there, but there is a law against the promotion of homosexuality to minors. Issues relating to the LGBT community are not part of the public discourse. Gay people have a place in Russia, which is quite hidden and underground. So if you are listening to this and you are planning on heading to the World Cup, we urge you to be cautious. Let's come back to the states. Let's talk about the United States again. The Kentucky Supreme Court. That would be the Supreme Court of the great state of Kentucky. They have agreed to hear a case regarding a company's refusal to print T-shirts for a gay pride festival due to religious beliefs. News outlets report Kentucky's highest court issued an order last month saying it would hear the case. Lexington's Gay and Lesbian Services Organization tried to order the t-shirts for the city's 2012 Gay Pride Festival. An owner of Hands-On Originals, Blaine Adamson, refused the order, citing his Christian beliefs. The Lexington Human Rights Commission ruled that the company violated the city's Fairness Ordinance, which outlaws discrimination based on sexual orientation. The company appealed to the Fayette Circuit Court, which ruled in its favor. The appeals court affirmed the lower court's decision, and now they will be setting a date for the Kentucky Supreme Court. We will see what happens with that. Two mothers in Virginia are furious after finding out that a local conservative politician told their daughter she needed a father. Evelyn and Heidi Brumar say that Janine Lawson made the comments to their 15-year-old adopted daughter, Rose, and these mothers are demanding an apology. Lawson has been the Brentsville District Supervisor on the Prince William County government since 2014. As well as having held elected positions in the Republican Party, she is a proud supporter of the Family Foundation, a pro-life anti-gay marriage organization. The Brumars told Pink News that Rose was handing out sample 
ballots for the Democratic Party outside a polling station on November 7th when she met Lawson. Lawson was at the polling station that day supporting Republican candidate Bob Marshall, who is the politician known for his controversial bathroom bill, who happily lost. Upon finding out that Rose had two mothers, Lawson allegedly told her that she, quote, deserved a mother and a father in a biblical sense. The mothers understandably said this, quote, it's very disrespectful. She devalued our family. Words matter to children. Behavior matters to children. Setting an example matters to children. So there's that. So many other stories. We don't even have time to get to all these. The founder of a parody account, which pretended to be a gay movement backing Donald Trump, has been arrested. Lucian Wintrich, who is he's just not a good person. He works for the right-wing site Gateway Pundit. He was arrested at the University of Connecticut. The White House correspondent was there to deliver a speech called It's Okay to Be White. And he was arrested as part of a protest that then broke out. Not feeling too bad about that. And finally, it is World AIDS Day this week. And check out this story. Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, she is standing up to the stigma. She took an HIV test in front of the media. She took the test ahead of World AIDS Day this week as part of the campaign by HIV Scotland. The first minister supported Scotland's HIV anti-stigma campaign by taking an HIV self-test, which can provide a result in just five minutes, and she took the test in front of the country's press. Supported by George Valiotis, the CEO of HIV Scotland, Miss Sturgeon became the first UK government leader to publicly take an HIV test. This changes lives. It absolutely breaks down the stigma. So kudos, kudos to this politician for doing a really good thing. It's one of those things that you can do in advance of World AIDS Day is set a great example. And that's what Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has done. Again, so many stories out there, but we don't have time to cover them because we had such an amazing, amazing chat with Dr. Caitlin Ryan. And of course, Go learn more about the Family Acceptance Project. Such incredible work going on there. You guys know what to do. You need to get out there. Use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBT brothers and sisters, for our siblings out there, for our allies out there, everybody out there. Use your voice to go make a difference. And while you're out there making a difference, while you're out there using your voice, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?